All of us have been impacted by the Christchurch terror attacks to some degree or another. And we're coming to realise that this will be a defining moment in New Zealand history. Like 9-11 was to the United States, March 15 will be to us. It's the day that international terror came to our back door. Now, having out-of-town speakers locked in over the last two weeks means today is the first opportunity I've had to address the tragedy from the pulpit. I didn't want to ask people to travel to Cromwell and then say, don't speak. But this distance is actually quite helpful because the initial shock and rawness of that terror attack has sort of waned a little with us. We've sat with what's happened. Life is continuing. So now's a good time to open our Bibles and reflect. In the initial days, we opened our Bibles for comfort. Wonderful. Now we're opening our Bibles to understand and work out the way forward. So let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we we find ourselves facing the unthinkable. And so we turn to you and your word. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice as it speaks into this tragedy amongst the Muslim community. Open our deaf ears and soften our hard hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first and immediate response by most New Zealanders was shock to the news on March the 15th. Now, this was then quickly followed by an overwhelming sense of sympathy and heartbreak. Who has not felt compassion for those who have lost loved ones, those injured, those traumatised by the murder of the 15 Muslim worshippers. Yes, compassion has been our first initial response for most of us. But in the aftermath and alongside this heartfelt compassion grew a sense of caution amongst many Christians. For as the secular media and politicians embraced all things Muslim, a hesitation began to grow amongst Christ followers. For the Muslim faith at its core is not compatible with the Christian faith. And so while Christians were joining with New Zealand and affirming the Muslim community, which is good and right, we started asking ourselves, are we affirming their faith as we affirm the community? Certainly how I felt. And when I was talking to other church folk, I could hear the same thing. Said in different words, there was this overwhelming sympathy, but this, oh, I'm not quite sure where we're going with this. Now, not all Christians have reacted this way, but certainly it was my response and the response of people that I've talked to. Now, Brian Tamaki helped put this caution into words. Now, Brian is controversial, and uh, many of us have opinions about Brian, and he is much maligned by the New Zealand media. So whenever you read a report, whenever I read a report that mentions Brian Tamaki, I try and put my filters on because I think he's vilified. And sometimes it's justifiable, but often I think it's an overreaction. That's another story. Whatever you think of Brian Tamaki, he was brave enough to put into words the unease that many Kiwi Christians were starting to feel in the days after the terror attack. In response to the Prime Minister's call for a national two-minute silence, preceded by the Muslim call to prayer, Brian Tamaki tweeted this. You won't be able to read the words, but I'll, I'll read it for you. He tweeted, 
Two minutes of silence is okay, but the Islamic prayer will sound as well. It contains this line, There is no God but Allah. Well, I disagree. Jesus Christ is the only true God. And of course the media fussed and Twitter spluttered, but Brian Tamaki was insightful on two accounts. First, he put into words the unease many Christians were starting to feel. And secondly, he identified the crucial incompatibility between the Christian and the Muslim's faith. Muslims say there is no God but Allah, but Christians say Jesus Christ is God. And so, we have this twofold response. A heartfelt, genuine compassion, but it's tempered with a sense of caution. So how do we resolve these two mixed, even contradictory emotions? Well, that's what we're going to look at doing today. We're going to explore each one. We're going to look at our response of compassion and then our response of caution and line them up with the word of God and then see where God's word takes us. So, compassion. Is it appropriate that we respond to the Muslim community with compassion? Well, of course it is, isn't it? It's self-evident. It's self On the basis of shared humanity alone, we should respond to events like this with compassion. And so we're not surprised that the Bible encourages us to show compassion, but you may be surprised on how specific that encouragement is. So we're going to look at three Old Testament verses that show us and guide us and how we respond with compassion to the Muslim community or any other community that faces such tragedy. And the first verse is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33. It was what was read today, 33 and 34. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of the native born, as one of your own. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word of alien? Well, in my generation, we think science fiction. From Star Trek to Star Wars to Close Encounters of a Third Kind to the X-Files. However, technically, the word alien refers to foreigner living in another land. Any foreigner living in another land, not their homeland, technically is an alien. In New Zealand, we think refugee, immigrant, migrant worker, especially before they gain citizenship. We could uh, contextualise, put this appropriate into a New Zealand um, situation and say, when a refugee lives with you in your land, do not mistreat them. The refugee living with you must be treated as one of your native-born, as a Kiwi. Love them as yourselves. For you were refugees in Egypt. We would say... Well, all of us can, only, we can trace us back down to two or three generations and all of us are immigrants, aren't we? So even though we weren't living in Egypt, we're all immigrants. So we could say, you were all refugees because you were all immigrants at some time. I am the Lord your God. And you know, I'm not sure if we've done that particularly well in New Zealand. I don't think the Christian community has done as well as it could with immigrants, especially those from different ethnic groups. And I'm thinking of our Pacific Island brothers and sisters and uh, the Muslim community and the Asian community and the like. 
uh, Alan Buxton was telling me a few months ago when they hosted a Filipino family a while back. Uh, you know what it's like. His daughter met this family and said, oh, why don't you go and stay with my parents when you're down in Cromwell? I mean, how many of us have children like that? It's great, isn't it? So this Filipino family with three children rocked up and were warmly welcomed as only the Buxtons can. But Alan was telling me that they were five years in New Zealand and that was the first time that family had been in a New Zealand home. It was the first time they'd had a meal with Kiwis, the first time they had stayed in a Kiwi family at night. Hmm, I'm not quite so sure that we've done, as a Christian community, done a good job of inviting immigrants into our communities and homes. But anyway, reminding ourselves what Leviticus 19:33 and 34 is saying, saying, treat the refugee and immigrant as New Zealand-born, love them as you would other Kiwis. So it's the first Bible verse. Another one, very relevant. This next verse to Kiwi culture. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy. Whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in your own one of your own towns, pay them his wages. Verse 17, do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice. Pay them their wages. When we were in, uh, living in Auckland, Judy and I used to go to an Indian restaurant called Masala until we read in the news that the owner had been taking immigrant Indian folk, taking their passports, and paying them way less than the minimum wage. And so there was a big court case, and and they got dealt with. But this Bible verse is telling us, don't do that. Don't take advantage of immigrants. Pay them their wages. And we've also heard of some cases when it comes to those working on orchards, where certain unscrupulous New Zealanders have been underpaying them. Well, very clear, isn't it? The Bible is telling us, pay the immigrant, the refugee, the migrant worker, their wages as they deserve. The third verse we're looking at is a wonderful verse of generosity where God says, invite the immigrants to your religious feasts and celebrations. An alien, a refugee living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must do so in accordance with the rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for alien and native-born. So on the one hand, you have this wonderful generosity where God is saying, if you've got an immigrant or refugee in your land, Probably worshipping other gods. Doesn't matter. Invite them to your religious feasts. They have to abide by the regulations, but the invitation is open. Isn't God generous? You see, God sees the refugee and the immigrant as vulnerable, just like widows, just like orphans in those days. And so they have a special place in God's heart. And this needs to be reflected in the way that we, as God's church, treat them. So when it comes to the mosque terror attacks, compassion is a natural and appropriate response, not only because of our shared humanity, but because the Bible encourages us, specifically encourages us, to be compassionate to those that are vulnerable in our community. And this now brings us, though, to a caution. And this is a sensitive matter, so it's important that we ask ourselves, what is the caution that we're feeling? And is it right to feel that? Caution. Now, to help us understand our caution, we need to understand something of the Muslim faith, the similarities and the differences. 
So what's similar between us and Islam? Well, three major religions trace their roots back to Abraham. Christianity, Islam, and of course Judaism. For both Jews and Christians, we trace our heritage back through Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, the heir of the promises. But some of you will also know that Abraham had an older son through Sarah's servant girl, Hagar. Uh, Hagar bore Abraham a son. Do you know his name? Ishmael. That's right, Ishmael. So Muslims trace their heritage through the line of Ishmael to Abraham. So Abraham is a key figure to Muslims and Christians. However, the founder of Islam is not Abraham, but Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad. He was active some 600 years after Jesus. Under his influence, Arabia went from a multi-god to a single-god religion. They were polytheistic, then they went to monotheistic. And this is the second key similarity. Christians believe in one God, Muslims believe in one God, and the understanding of God traces its roots back to Abraham. Okay, they're not the same God, but they are similar. And during Muhammad's life, he also wrote the Quran. The Quran. And so that's our third common factor is that we each have a holy book. We have the Bible, they have the Quran. Now in the Quran, it references the first five books of the Bible, the Psalms and the Gospels. After Muhammad's death, Islam spread through Arabia by a series of successful military conquests. Its rise was rapid and far-reaching. So, there's a very brief summary, but can you see the similarities? Abraham, one God, holy book. Uh, And for some folk that are undiscerning or don't know the facts, they then think, well, you're all worshipping the one God, what's the problem? Well, the challenge becomes when it comes looking at our differences. There are a number We've only got time to look at the one key difference, and that key difference is Jesus Christ. That's the key difference. You see, it's absolutely central to the Islamic faith that there is no God but Allah, and this is contrasted with Christians' core belief that Jesus is God. And because of that, there's the outflow of the Trinity. So Muslims see Jesus as just one prophet among a number, with Muhammad being the greatest prophet, while Christians see Jesus as divine, God's own son. And this is so crucial, so crucial that it's worth us spending some time on the divinity of Christ. Again, three verses to help focus our attention. And the Gospel of John, verses 1 and 2, we'll start with. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word was God. That's a very clear claim to Jesus' divinity. There is no similar claim for Muhammad in the Quran. So it's the first. Then there are the words of Jesus himself. In the trial before the religious leaders, as we had read before, the high priest asks in Mark 14, verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed God, or the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. There we go. The the priest, the high priest is saying, are you divine? And he says, I am. And just a little word play that's happening here. If you remember back to Moses and the burning bush, 
And God's saying to Moses, go and talk to my people in Egypt. And he's saying, who shall I say has sent me? What is your name? And God says, I am. I am who I am, which is where we get the word Yahweh from. I am. So you see how there's a double emphasis by Jesus? He's been asked, are you divine? And he says, I am, thinking burning bush. And that's why the chief priest screamed out, blasphemy, he deserves death. I am. He even, he even puts a knife in even further, does Jesus, because then he quotes this wonderful vision of Daniel where the Son of Man, the divine Son of Man, is at the throne of God. And he quotes it here. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty wine and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's when the trial turned, because it was considered to be blasphemy, because he was claiming divinity. And our third verse that we're going to look at that shows the divinity of Jesus, again, in his own words, John 14, 6 Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Do you know how incredibly offensive these words are to every other religion? It's the offense of the gospel. It's the exclusiveness. That's why Jesus got put on the cross, because he's saying, I am the only way. And the Jews were saying, no, no, we got the temple. No, I am The only way, Jesus said. He reinforces it here. And you would think that every other religion has a full right to criticize Jesus and his followers, to rail against them, to lambast them, even persecuted them for this blasphemy. If it wasn't for the empty tomb. It's the empty tomb that makes all Jesus' outrageous claims credible. If there was no empty tomb, Jesus would be rightly dismissed as either well-meaning but deluded, a deceiver, or working with the devil. If there was no empty tomb, we should be ashamed at following a man who made those claims. But because of the glory of Easter Sunday, because he was raised from the dead, all that he said was confirmed. And so to the Muslims who claim there is no God but Allah, we counterclaim and say, Jesus is God. His being raised from the dead proves it. And as an aside, an important aside, that we worship Jesus because he is God upsets Muslims no end. To them, the two songs that we were singing beforehand were worshipping Jesus. They would cause offence to the Muslims because they would see that as blasphemy and idol worship, because for them, you can only worship Allah. And so because of this fundamental and it's irresolvable difference, there are others, but this is key, because this is you just can't marry these two together. You just can't talk and talk with the Muslim folk and come to some agreement, because they claim there is one God but Allah, and we say Jesus is God. Because of this, there is an incompatibility with Christian faith in the Muslim faith. And this is the source of the caution that Christians were starting to feel and still feel in our response. So on one hand, we have a genuine and biblically based sense of compassion. And on the other hand, we have a genuine and biblically based sense of caution. So what are we going to do with all this? 
Are we going to leave ourselves hanging? Well, no, there is a way forward. Let's try and pull this together so that we can integrate our response. Well, first of all, compassion. Compassion. Not only is compassion a natural human response, but we've also seen that God specifically instructs us to be generous to the refugee and the immigrant. So any response of compassion is appropriate. So you may have given to the Give a Little fundraising. Great. You may have attended some of the vigils. Wonderful. There may be some other ways that you can extend practical support. Knock yourself out. There's no conflict with showing compassion to the Muslim community. With this, we have a challenge. I mean, we need to look with ourselves about how we in Cromwell have been welcoming, encouraging refugee immigrants and migrate workers. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a gentle challenge there. But when it comes to compassion, there is a freedom for Christians to respond from the heart as you feel moved to bless that community. But then there's the caution. How are we to affirm the Muslim community without affirming their faith? Well, getting back to Brian Tamaki's concern over the Muslim prayer, the call to worship, a good response is to simply pray to Christ in your heart while others are praying to Allah. While you're doing that, ask Jesus to bless the victims and their families and pray that somehow they may find Christ amongst the tragedy. There's no conflict there, is there? Same if you're at a vigil and there's a call to prayer. Just quietly pray to Christ. We're not, we're not praying adversary. We're not praying anti. We're just saying, Jesus, please bless this community. May they see Christ in all this. Help New Zealanders to welcome them. Help me to welcome them. And we can follow our lead from our missionaries. People like Pete and Christine Johnston. They have been working in a majority Muslim context. So Kiwi Christians, we haven't thought this through. Suddenly... It's brought to our attention, well, there's this big tragedy in a Muslim community, how do I react? But the missionaries that go into a a Muslim-majority communities and countries have thought this through. It's part of the orientation. How do we interact with the Muslim community? You know, um, how do we develop relationships? But where do we draw the line? And so we can draw on people like that to say, well, how did, you, how, do, how did you do that in Burkina Faso? Or how do you do that in other countries where missionaries are operating? They do it really well. Where they do build relationships, but they know where the line is so they don't cross over as they seek to share Jesus with them. And not only this, but we have the opportunity to be proactive and build relationships with Muslims and other immigrants in Cromwell. Well, I'm not sure how many Muslim folk there are in Cromwell. I think we would be surprised. You know, I think there would be a few more than we would think. But here's a challenge for us. Let them see the inside of a Kiwi house for a visit, for a meal, for our children or grandchildren pray, play with their children. Uh, there are opportunities. There's a gentle challenge for us to be outside our comfort zone when it comes to people in our community. So today, what have we done? Well... What we haven't done is explore the big questions. And so I was praying about this. Do we go for the more gut-level emotional response or do we look at the big questions like, like how does a compassionate God allow evil in the land? Or what's it about human nature that leads itself to such terror acts? Now, those are the big questions, and we'll, we'll address those in another time. 
But there's too much to say in one message. So we'll put those aside for the moment. What we have looked at is our emotional response that was common to most Christians, certainly all the Christians that I spoke to, not all Christians, but the ones I spoke to. And these are questions that are really important. It's, it's good that we pause and, and look at our compassion and our caution, and we've seen that they are appropriate responses. The compassion is encouraged by Scripture, and our caution is based on Scripture. Now, it's very careful here that we don't base our caution on prejudice or fear, but that it's based on Scripture. Alongside these mixed emotions, we have a clear call to be Christ-like in our response, both in compassion and in caution. Why? Because as God's children, we care. And as we respond from the heart, our credibility and opportunity to share Jesus grows. And finally, the last word. God's own son gave up his life, so evil need never have the final word. Jesus will come again. He will come again soon and put things right. And he will come and he will wipe every tear from every eye. And there will be justice. And there will be mercy. And this is our hope in this life and in the age to come. Let's pray.